Hi, this is episode three of the podcast. I'm here with uh, Professor Marina Mogiller. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, today, uh, she's a specialist in Russian history. So if Professor Mogiller can introduce herself, if I pronounced the name right. Um, hi, Demetrius. Hi, everyone. Um, Marina Mogilner, um, and uh, I teach Russian imperial history primarily. I teach Russia as an empire, as a very diverse society that had formed um, in Eurasia, populated by various uh, peoples who spoke many different languages who had many different cultures and basically my focus is always on how um, political uh, institutions and authorities managed diversity and made sense of diversity but also how people on the ground uh, self-organized how they perceived themselves and their sense of belonging and how the state that we know at the Russian Empire came into being and then also what is special about Russia as an imperial society right rather than um, uh, ethnically Russian state and society and I keep the same focus when I teach Soviet period because Soviet uh, Union was also an imperial formation, a multinational state. So this is, generally speaking, uh, what I do as a historian um, of Russian Empire and Soviet Union, uh, Northern Eurasia, generally speaking. Okay, uh, I think that leads us really into our first topic. So as a historian, you have to obviously dig through archives. And I know in Russia, it's a little bit difficult to access some of those archives. So as a historian, how do you, how do you uh, approach acts uh, when you can't access a source? How do you approach it? And uh, what do you do when you can't access a source? Well, this is a very general question, right? Because, um, uh, it very much depends on a particular project and also on the kind of research questions that we ask. It's much more difficult right now to get access to archives um, covering the Soviet period and especially particular topics such as um, Stalinism and Gulag and Great uh, terror, but there are also less and less accessibility to archives covering the Second World War, for example, the history of, of the Second World War, which is known in Russia as a great patriotic war, um, has been reconsidered um, under Putin in particular as the ultimate um, uh, unifying mythology, historical um, account for contemporary Russians. And this history is censored. And there are many episodes starting from something that um, has been known very well for a long period of time, right? Uh, the so-called secret protocols. Uh, 
right now you can't get access to archives pertaining to um, Soviet uh, policies um, in 1939 and 1940 before the official um, German invasion of the Soviet Union. So there are many episodes and topics um, which is very difficult to study uh, in Russian archives. And so here historians have to make strategic decisions. And there are, you know, range of options available. For example, um, historians work in archives in Ukraine, which are much more accessible, or they work in archives in Baltic states, or they work in archives in Germany to compensate for what is unavailable uh, in Russia. But generally speaking, and this is something that I want, this is my message to those who consider um, majoring in Russian history or even uh, um, you know, going to graduate school in Russian history, you don't have to be discouraged by the fact that archives are becoming less available. Um, primarily because we lived through the period of 1990s, well, when all archives were available, when we had access to almost all kinds of documents, and we also had this illusion that once you have uh, complete access to archival documents, documents will speak for themselves. They will tell the truth. And this is how we understand history. And this is an illusion because very much depends on how we ask our research questions. What do you do we want to, to learn from our sources, right? And so when you are interested in how people survived under you know, particular circumstances, how they reacted to particular events, you really can refocus from state archives to uh, oral histories to, you know, statistics that uh, is available to different kind of sources in social history that are available. And you can write different kind of histories that also then will shed light on um, state history. And well, probably you will be able to ask different kind of questions going forward when archives will be hopefully more accessible again in the future. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. I know with a lot of periods in history, there's uh, limited archives and a lot of historians actually work with trying to fill the holes with secondary sources and they try to uh, uh, they try to have whatever primary sources, they try to utilize them to the best of their ability. Obviously, oral histories are very useful since uh, you said you study Russia as an empire and obviously there's not <laughs> solely just Russians in Russia. There's obviously... Uh, uh, you said uh, when we discussed earlier, you said there were some there's Jews there, there's some Muslims in uh, Russia. So there's a diverse population in there uh, and it's not just ethnic Russians. So I find that very interesting to say, hey, um, during World War II, what happened with the Jews um, in Stalinist Russia? What happened with the Muslims? So those are very interesting questions that a lot of a lot of people in the mainstream probably won't ask. So I think that's very interesting and that perspective is a very valuable perspective as how minorities are treated in one country uh, obviously pay, plays some parallel to uh, here in the United States or anywhere else.
Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I also uh, want to add that the very concept of minority is a historical concept. And it's emerged as a kind of valid political concept and legal concept um, in the context of the First World War, um, in the context of a kind of a new um, reorganization of the world uh, where nation state, post-imperial nation state became a reality uh, and then the problem with minorities um, has emerged. Empires were multi-national, multi-ethnic, multi-religious formations. And of course, they were hierarchical and uh, there were violence um, always I mean, involved and um, uh, inequality was part of the repertoire of imperial rule always. However, empires did not operate with terms such as minorities. This is our contemporary language that we apply to those older uh, political formations because empires were based on the idea that population is diverse and different. And we have to manage and organize and control this diverse and different population, but we can't homogenize. Whereas nation state is about imagining societies as being homogenous, right? Which is never a reality unless you implement ethnic cleansing, which what happened um, in say central Eastern Europe during the Second World War. But you know, the society in nation state is imagined as being homogenous, and then there are those minorities, those others. They do not necessarily uh, correspond to the idea of minority in numerical sense. They may be as numerous as the majority in a particular country, but they are minorities uh, because they are viewed through this nationalizing lens. And when you say minorities in the Soviet Union, for example, this really sounds interesting because, you know, Soviet Union was a state of nations. There were 15 national republics. And, um, you know, it's a very interesting story of how the republics were designated and how some people received a status of a nation, whereas others didn't and completely disappeared from the map of human diversity, right? But, you know, those non-Russians, they constituted majorities in their national republics. And um, it may be a little bit misleading to, to describe this reality in terms of majority-minorities relationships, right? And, and today, the Russian Federation is a federal state. So whenever we say Russia, we have to remember, as you said, that this is a very diverse society where uh, Muslims, for example, is the second largest group of population in terms of, well, religious affiliation, right? But there are different ways of uh, identifying people by religion, by their sense of belonging, national belonging. So we should be, I mean, this is part of why Russian history is so interesting, that it's really kind of 
teaches us to be very careful with how we use this language of identity and how we tend to homogenize the reality that is never um, colored in one color, right? That is always very complex and very diverse. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'll connect it to Greece. I know Greece is a very homogenous country due to a population exchange. And uh, even then, it's still not fully homogenized. There are still certain Muslim minorities, uh, Jewish minorities, even even if they're small, they're still there. So the idea of a nation state being homogenous and having the minorities, uh, the minorities being a nation state concept, while with an empire, you're having you ha integrate those minorities. Those minorities are int integral to uh, an empire is a very interesting concept that. A lot of people, if you ask them down the street what the difference between the empire and a nation state is, they probably wouldn't be able to explain it. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting concept. Uh, yeah, in terms of religion, I remember I was looking at some statistics, obviously. Uh, I don't know if this is correct, but from what I've seen, only 80% of Russia is ethnically Russian. So a 20% is a sizable minority. So I'm not 100% sure if those statistics are correct or anything. Uh, but I would uh, really love to see, uh, hear your thoughts on uh, like the division of uh, minorities in the modern Russian Federation. Yeah, so the, the stati statistics that you just cited is not a correct statistic statistics and this is because the numbers are changing um so uh during this transitional period from soviet union to the post-soviet russian federation um it became apparent that people from mixed families and there are many mixed marriages um, during the Soviet period, that these people were given now an option, right, to decide um, their, what, what their nationality should be. And again, nationality was something that was assigned to every Soviet citizen. There was a line in Soviet internal passports um, that said nationality. And nationality under the Soviet um, regime was understood basically as a race. You could not choose your nationality based on your self-perception, on your cultural orientation. Your nationality was determined by nationality of your parents. So the choice was either your father's nationality or your mother's nationality. And the choice was very, very often strategic. So, for example, um, in Uzbekistan, in Central Asia, uh, in the late Soviet period, it um, could have been more beneficial to be Uzbek. So someone from, a, say, Uzbek-Russian family would... Um, register as an Uzbek because this would then provide more opportunities for a person under this nationalizing late Soviet Uzbek um, regime in the Re Uzbek Republic. But then if someone would consider um, living outside of Uzbekistan, say in Moscow and making a career in Moscow, then for example, um, 
Russian would be more beneficial, right? But the, the, the choice of either Uzbek or Russian was determined by um, nationality of your parents. And this became kind of much more complicated um, after the end of the Soviet Union, because, you know, the, you remember, right, that the Soviet, U Soviet Union had dissolved along the uh, those national lines. So Soviet national republics became independent states. And Russian Federation uh, was never a Russian state because it remained quite diverse internally. There always were so-called national autonomous regions, like for example, uh, Tatarstan, Tatar Autonomous Republic, uh, in the very center of the Russian Federation, the Volga region, um, half Tatar, half Russian, half Muslim, half Russian uh, population historically, but there were many um, Tatars who, uh, children of mixed uh, marriages, who registered as Russians because this was, this, this made more sense for someone uh, who lived in a so-called autonomous republic, not a national republic. Uh, under the new, like, uh, new circumstances, after the end of the Soviet Union, those people tended to register as Russians for some time. And then again as Tatars, when, you know, Tatar Republic was given uh, a kind of a special status within the Russian Federation. So those numbers, they vary. And they vary... Uh, perception of what made some make someone Russian or non-Russian um, is quite a, um, it's it's kind of a debatable, right? So, what makes a Russian a Russian? So, whether this is origin or this is culture, so it's kind of now open to interpretation. And so, these numbers they are they reflect uh, a kind of a um, momentous uh, definition, right? So this is what at present seems to be uh, politically kind of um, uh, making more sense to be a Russian rather than a Tatar or Yakut uh, or a Ukrainian living um, in uh, Russia or maybe Greek. Um, living in the Russian Federation, there is no developed concept of civic nationhood. So when you say Russian today, usually this means um, ethnicity, whereas for Russia, uh, it would have much more sense to have a clearly defined idea of Russian as, as a civic nationhood, right? And there is a difference between ethnic nationhood defined by origin, by traditions and culture, and civic nationhood. And for example, when you say that you're an American, this does not mean that uh, you belong to an American ethnic nation, right? It just means that you are a citizen of the U.S. And this sense of Russian as a civic nationhood is still uh, underdeveloped. And especially under you know Putin's regime, with you know this new push towards Russian nationalism, this civic Russianness has been less and less popular. So um, this is another long and very interesting story of what is what, what does it mean to be Russian in different periods of 
um, Russian history and also in, in contemporary Russia. Yeah, and go, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, I think it's very interesting how there's no hyphenated identities. Uh, the hyphenated identities are kind of, uh, maybe if I'm interpreting this correctly, uh, you would choose to be Russian as it's politically beneficial. You would pick whatever identity at the time would be most beneficial for you to get the to get uh, very far in life, obviously. So I think that's very interesting. Uh, whereas in the U.S., you have hyphenated identities. So if I talk to my neighbor, he says, I'm an Italian-American. If I talk to my other friend, I'm a Polish-American. So it doesn't, maybe from my outsider's perspective, it seems like uh, the hyphenated identities aren't really a thing. I don't know if that's a correct interpretation. This is such an interesting observation. So you know Greece, right? So do you... Uh, are there hyphenated identities in Greece? Not really. Not really. And, and this is true about most of the nationalizing regimes. And Russia nowadays, and this is my argument um, in uh, you know, debates about whether contemporary Russia is an imperial state, and many people um, tend to see Russia as a kind of an imperial formation and inter interpret Russian um, politics, aggressive politics um, uh, towards former Soviet neighbors, such as Ukraine, such as Baltic states, as an expression of uh, Russia's imperial nature. So my argument is that Russia behaves as an aggressive nation state, that Russia perceives, it, perceives itself as a, as, a, as a nation state, a Russian nation state. It's very difficult to do given the, um, uh, the nature of the population and the kind of a historical memories that persist and uh, the fact that Russia has never been a nation state. Uh, but it's a nationalizing regime, and that's why hyphenated identities are very problematic, because nationalizing regimes, they tend to designate those hyphenated identities as a problem, right? Because you, you actually want to have a kind of a loyal nation, a unified cultural space, and you want to imagine your population as being part of one national body. Whereas hyphenated identity, this is something that was cultivated by imperial regimes. All those multiple loyalties and hyphenated identities, this is what imperial historians deal with. And US in this sense is an imperial formation. Right. Whereas Russia is trying to move from um, the sense of being always something more than just a nation state to becoming a nation state, um, which is a very again difficult task given uh, the the realities on the ground, and yet no hyphenated identities and no reflection on how to incorporate this diversity into, you know, contemporary ideology of the regime. Yeah, that's uh, it's a very interesting uh, segue into another topic I was kind of interested in uh, regarding uh, Putin. Um, like Putin's current regime, a lot of people have argued that uh, certain aspects of Putin's regime could be reflected into the United States uh, 20 to 30 years from now. 
especially with the surge in right-wing populism across the world, obviously. Uh, yeah. What can Americans learn from the issues with contemporary Russia? Uh, for example, in the article, I, uh, one of the articles you suggested I read, it said that a lot of Russian citizens don't even believe uh, that uh, an ambulance is actually taking a sick person. They believe it's an Uber or something like that. And uh, there's like an obsession with privatization, which is uh, very similar to the U.S., where there's an obsession with privatizing our schools, uh, further privatizing our healthcare. So uh, I just I think that's really interesting. Um, and obviously, uh, there's some parallels with Putin. It's obviously not the same. The United States has different circumstances, but what parallels can we draw? Oh, this is a. Uh, um this is a very interesting question, and I am a historian, not a political scientist, right? And sometimes I think that, my goodness, I'm so happy that I am a historian, that I study, you know, past, not present. Um, but uh, this is a very important question, and uh, there is some irony in, uh, if you think about you know, 1990s, for example, when American experts would point at Russia and say, well, Russia has to catch up with uh, the developed uh, democracies such as the US, uh, has to liberalize its economy, and most importantly, uh, has to create um, democratic institutions, right? So U.S. was like an example for Russia, um, a, a kind of a scenario of democratic development that Russia was supposed to implement and follow. And now we ask uh, a very different question of how Russia may be uh, an example of what awaits the U.S. society <laughs> in the future. Uh, and I see um, an irony in, in this, but I do believe that, you know, Russian example is very important for uh, American society, American political elites, and just ordinary people to reflect on what is happening in American society today. This is like a mirror, right, in which you can see um, a quite a possible scenario of development if conclusions will not be drawn right now. And um, so Putin's regime um, is a populist uh, regime that started, that actually invested in discrediting state institutions a lot. And this is one important lesson for the U.S. society, right? That, you know, we, we just realized uh, in, in the last five years that these democratic institutions are based on um, the persisting consensus about them as being key to working democracy in this country. The moment people stop believing in those institutions, they stop working. And this what had happened in Russia, and this was uh, a deliberate effort on the part of the regime to discredit institutions. And this is common to many populist regimes based on 
promoting a particular leader as um, a real kind of embodiment of popular interests, not the state. State is corrupt. Institutions don't work. There is this, um, um, you know, state that actually a kind of a hidden state, right? Uh, this uh, state sort that... Like, that the, so sort of like the deep state or journey... Deep state, yes, exactly. That... Um, actually pursues its own interests rather than popular interests. And there is this leader, a populist leader who embodies the real concerns of his or her um, nation. And so this was kind of the message of the Putin's regime, which was quite successful because the state in Russia was indeed, indeed and remains deeply corrupt, and there are there are good reasons to suspect that you know this ambulance you know referring to the article that you read that this is really not an ambulance but that this is the car that just you know um, some high officials official is using to you know get through Moscow and not to stay and you know, you know not to observe um, you know uh, traffic rules or whatever so. Um, this is one important lesson. The second important lesson is how Putin's regime put mainstream media under control. So they started with discrediting mainstream media and then they put them under control. And now this is a major uh, instrument of manipulating minds. And of course, it's uh, a kind of a um, bad argument to say that people are manipulated and they uh, act the way they act because they are manipulated. But in fact, I, I remember I came to Russia once for my archival trip and I ended up in a dentist office and, you know, I my mouth was open and fixed open and I couldn't voice my disagreement when um, the the state channel and all channels are now controlled by the state directly or indirectly. But you know the news, the official news was on the screen for like 15 minutes when I couldn't say I don't want to watch you know this. And 15 minutes were enough to kind of starting brainwashing me. I mean the message is so well designed and so powerful that you can't resist. So this is another lesson when, you know, from, from Putin's regime, when uh, people are either like the media are controlled and people are localized in their small um, kind of Facebook groups or whatever. So there is no expert dialogue going on and there are no trust in media. And this also helped, you know, this authoritarian regime to... Uh, uh, very effectively achieve its goals, uh, courts, discrediting courts and putting them under state control. So this was another thing that Putin regime did, and this is something that can be an important lesson for the U.S. Um, and then, law, you know, discrediting the elections you know, the institution of elections. And I would say that what we observe in Russia today is a very explicit um, 
attempt to to manipulate the results, the election results, so that people can see that whether you come and vote or you refuse to come and vote or you vote for someone, for some oppositional leaders or whatever, doesn't matter because the, the elections, they, you know, formally speaking, there are democratic elections, right? The regime uh, holds democratic elections. But in fact, elections don't work. They change nothing. Results are manipulated. Courts don't work. You can't um, voice your protest either on TV or in courts. And so it makes no sense really to care. So this is, um, you know, these are all parts of the system that result in um, in Putin's regimes, uh, regime as we see today. Um, and then nationalism as an ideology that mobilizes people more than anything else. And all, you know, recent uh, military operations by, you know, the regime, especially in Ukraine, these were acts of nationalism. The ideology was clearly nationalistic. And uh, this is another, I think, very powerful um, lesson that the U.S. society may want to learn from uh, the Putin's example. So put all of this together and you will see lots of familiar patterns and trends and try to imagine how this situation can play out in the American society. I, I, my last trip to Russia was this summer. And I was terrified, really, with what uh, was going on uh, with uh, the COVID um, epidemics and people's disbelief in um, vaccination and their negligence in terms of, um, you know, observing all those uh, basic rules about masking and social distancing. And so, again, you can see how... Um, one scenario, one version that is advanced here in the U.S. is implemented in reality yeah, in Russia. Yeah, it seems very scary here in the U.S. Uh, if we're looking at media trust, media trust is at an all-time low in the United States. And, uh, and even with the recent elections, there have been so many audits on elections, on the elections here in the United States that tell the same thing. Uh, that, hey, the election wasn't stolen, uh, Joe Biden won the election legitimately. And you also have uh, the courts where um, Trump-appointed judges obviously said the election wasn't stolen or anything. They uh, they dismissed a lot of his cases, and he he's still complaining. I don't know if he genuinely believes that. I think he's using it more as a tool. And uh, to say that these people believe all these lies, uh, I subscribe to more of the theory that... Um, I don't know if this applies to Putin as well, like uh, they subscribe to one lie that everything said bad about Trump, for example, is uh, is wrong. It's bad. So you don't have to believe all the other stuff. So honestly, it's a it's a very sad situation, disheartening to see in Russia how a populist uh, leader uh, usurped all 
usurped faith in all the democratic institutions. And uh, I know Putin can uh, potentially be president, uh, potentially not president leader of the of Russia for a very long time. I believe it was like 2036. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's a very scary future. And I think a lot of Americans need to be aware that the United States is not immune to this. Uh, we're not some sort of special nation state that uh, uh, that's a beacon of uh, democracy and democratic uh, and democratic institutions. So yeah, that's the main thing I got and I want people to uh, take away. I agree with you. And I do believe that uh, looking at the Russian mirror would be very useful for Americans, especially now, because you really can see what may happen in 20 years. And you may ask yourself whether you want to live in, in such a society. And um, there is this tendency uh, in the U.S. to perceive America as, a, you know, exceptional, as really different from other states and societies, but uh, more awareness about what is happening in Russia or in Eastern and Central Europe or in Europe, for that matter, would be very useful for, for many, many Americans. And that's why in general, like taking history classes uh, and especially, you know, classes in um, history other than American history, Greek history, Russian history, I don't know, Asian history can be tremendously illuminating. This is not something that should be your profession, right? This is really something that um, a modern human being, a modern citizen needs in order to be a conscious citizen and make uh, informed choices. This is really kind of a context that is absolutely necessary <laughs> today in order to understand uh, where you are, where your society is, and what are, you know, the available choices in terms of going forward. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think uh, one question I've had is uh, resistance, like, uh, are people resisting Putin's regime? Because I know with uh, Trump, there was a lot of outcry, a lot of resistance uh, voting for Joe Biden. Joe Biden was seen as like more of an alternative. He wasn't seen as like, oh, this savior. Oh, he's uh, he has the policies that a lot of the American people want. He was just seen as better than the alternative. Is there, I know in Russia, we talked about outside of this podcast, obviously how the opposition in the official government itself is more symbolic. Is there like resistance going on against Putin or is there any hope? Oh, is it any hope? Um, this is another very difficult and complex question. And one thing that I admire about the US society is that people do mobilize um, to resist and to protect um, their interests. And there is a culture of resistance here that is a civic resistance, right? That is probably absent um, in Russia. Uh, well, 
resistance well there is always resistance um it's very difficult now to resist um in a kind of a legal political sphere because all kind of political resistance is outlawed and it's uh, very dangerous even to go out um and protest as an individual any form of peaceful protest um right now can result in arrest and in severe sentence uh, so this fear for of, that is open that would be open for peaceful political opposition is almost non-existent in contemporary russia um so this was not the case even 5 years ago or 10 years ago and um the problem was that you know this putin's regime just as other modern populist regimes they combine elements of um kind of liberal liberal ideology especially when it comes to um economics here right private property encouraging like uh small businesses and the this kind of stuff and it combined this with um with nationalism with populism with anti-liberal um ideology and so there are many people who are invested uh into this regime and who are afraid of any changes because they have vested interests uh, economic interests to begin with and this group and this this are the, the majority of population that want to live their lives and you know um have their own businesses and make money and being able to travel and being able to give education to their children they are not like political creatures they do not really imagine themselves as members of political parties or movements um but at the same time they would rather support like normal dem- democracies with elections with political representations so they were um less motivated to protest when it was still possible to protest because first of all they were scared by by the left they were more scared by the left than they were concerned with you know putin's type of autocracy they were also receptive to you know this um message of nationalism they were receptive to this idea that russia has been humiliated by the west that russia used to be you know this great state the soviet union and now it's just like a secondary power um isolated uh having no place in like world politics um isolated both from european union and from you know global um uh, insti- political institutions and decision making and this was a kind of a um sentiment that 
um, helped many people to identify with Putin, who who exploited this argument, who uh, built his partially his charisma on, uh, on 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 this kind of sense of well, I'm a strong man, and I will um, restore the sense of pride that you know, our population used to have, and this is my mission. And so there were many reasons why people um, were ready to accept this regime and were very cautious and didn't protest and resisted uh, overt politicization of, you know, their complaints. And then it became after I think that that, that Ukraine was uh, a very important moment. The, the the beginning of you know a war in this hybrid war um, in Crimea and then in uh, Donbas region, many people simply supported this nationalist rhetoric, and they became kind of implicated, and um, so it's very hard to um, generalize about the future of resistance in contemporary Russia. There is a new generation, younger people, who uh, go out, who really are not afraid, but, you know, the regime right now also has passed, you know, this stage of kind of liberalism. And the regime is determined to eradicate this um, new generation of protesters, of young people who are not afraid. And they apply real terror. I mean, um, it's, 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 it's very concerning now the fate of those uh, people who are not afraid to resist openly. Um, they have no future. Uh, in Russia. So in this sense, Russia may look at Belarus, right, its neighbor, um, and see what awaits, uh, unfortunately, what awaits Russian society um, in, in maybe, you know, few years from, from now. But I'm very pessimistic in terms of uh, resistance. And I Again, in terms of uh, direct lessons for the U.S. society, I think the fact that there are so many people, individuals, groups, movements in the American society that are ready to mobilize and protest and you know defend their their ideas and their interests that this is great and that this culture of resistance should be cultivated um, because I guess this is more I mean this gives more hope than the institutional um, argument uh, this is really based should be based is based on um, uh, active participation on people perceiving themselves as uh, active participants of of civil life, of political life uh, in, in this country, which is not the case um, in Russia, unfortunately. Yeah, that's very interesting. A lot of the things you said just 
uh, I was like kind of obviously there's no video version, but I was kind of like twitching like, oh, uh, Russia's uh, we're going to return to this great Soviet past. It kind of invokes some like Nazi like imagery of like Adolf Hitler saying like, oh, we're going to make Germany. Uh, we're going to make Germany. We were humiliated during the Great War. We're going to be uh, we're going to be the best now. So like that kind of imagery. Uh, that's why I was kind of twitching like, oh, yeah, he's trying to use some Nazi, some fascist like tendencies to kind of uh, get ordinary people uh, who are not really active political participants to say, hey, this is just how it is. Russia has been humiliated. Uh, we should um, we should obviously um, support our great leader, Putin. It obviously uh also connects. I've also watched some interviews from a channel called Eli from Russia. I think she teaches like English. She's uh, English speaking Russian. She teaches Russian to a lot of people where she interviewed people on the, on the streets asking about uh, what do you think about the current political regime? And I was uh, surprised how a lot of people thought that the regime was corrupt. Uh, they thought the regime was corrupt. Obviously, there was a few people who were younger that supported Putin, which uh they were like, oh, our great leader Putin, I want to support our great leader Putin. A lot of people are against <coughs> our great leader Putin. So I thought it was very interesting that a lot of these young people can see this corruption. Uh, obviously, um, with the institutions, it's very difficult to resist uh, politically. So there's, uh, you have to look at some other channels. But um, obviously, I'm also a pessimist with a lot of these things. So obviously, I hope for the best. But honestly, I'm not. I'm honestly not uh, very optimistic uh, for the future. I'm also rather pessimistic. Um, and uh, I can't imagine how mass resistance is possible right now, even when people are ready. It just, the society is so atomized. It's very hard to mobilize um, people right now. It's dangerous, but also, you know, there is no society. It's really, and, and, and the reaction to COVID-19 also tells you how socially atomized the society is. People do not care about each other. Uh, and this is, of course, the result of, you know, total corruption, which is a systemic element of Russian state and system, and people learn to to navigate this corrupt society. And the the best way to navigate such society is to be focused on yourself and your family, and you know, bribing one particular um, official will help you rather than trying to change the system, which seems to be impossible, which really amounts to dismantling the entire system. And so people really are self-focused uh, and there is no social cohesion. And in times like this, times of epidemics, when you need the social cooperation and cohesion, it becomes apparent how uh, the society is not capable of any kind of, um, you know, unified social action. And then, you know, you also see this uh, in a political realm um, as well. And this is very sad and very disappointing. And I have many friends, I have many colleagues in Russia who protest on 
uh, their own individual level and who mobilize and try to mobilize to protect those people who whom they whom they respect and 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 this is always they they risk so much they risk not just their livelihood but they risk their freedom and the future of their children and i have tremendous respect for them but i'm also very very um pessimistic about you know the near future at least uh of protest okay yeah i know uh with the fall so we're going to transition here a little bit i know with the fall of communism in some other countries like poland uh religion had a big thing to do with it so how did the Russian orthodox church uh survive during uh the soviet union where it was where the religion was basically the state so how did it survive how did people practice their religion whether it be orthodox muslim jew uh, how was religion really practiced was it practiced in secret were people like upfront about it or how how did the um, religious practices go during the soviet union yeah this is a very interesting topic you can really teach an entire course on the role and place of the official church um and different religions um in the you know pre-revolutionary russian and soviet russian or post-soviet russia and this would be an amazing uh way to think about you know the history of um russian society long during in a long perspective uh there is one thing that is always very difficult to explain to um american audience that before the soviet time in tsarist russia religion was more like a church rather was more like a part of the state there was a ministry of religion like, very similar literally to, very similar to how today greece the the country of greece has the state has a religion and a lot of the priests are compensated as government employees So exactly yes so the peter the great was uh the the architect of this system uh in the russian case he created this ministry of religion and then he also i mean not he but you know his successors they created kind of state ministries for every recognized they were called confessions in the russian empire muslims had their own kind of ministry there was the same for the jews there was the same for um uh, you know protestants and and catholics and uh the the russian empire is often described as a confessional state uh because the state based uh much of its operations on re- you know it's it's relied on those confessional religious communities this is like something that probably you know also from you know greek history something that goes back to milet system in the ottoman empire when you have this recognized religious communities that are incorporated into the state system as self-governing institutions right and they pay they, they receive privileges and they are um you know governed according to uh their confessional belonging and they are treated 
based on who they are in terms of their confession. So this was the case in the Russian Empire uh, as well. Um, then um, after the revolution, you know, the, the Bolsheviks basically um, abolished, you know, the church as an institution, and they uh, they they fought with um, religion as as a kind of a form of false consciousness, right? They really wanted people so to embrace. So basically hmm? the idea that religion is the opium of the people. That kind yes, of exactly. The opium for the people, but uh, uh, this, um, I mean, they, they, they destroyed churches and um, priests, like clergy as a class, um, suffered greatly from uh, repressions. Uh, they were really eliminated, children of priests, uh, had no rights in the pre-war Soviet society. They could not receive education, like higher education. <clears throat> they could not vote. Um, they could not be promoted uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, the revival of Eastern Orthodoxy happened under Stalin and in the context of the Second World War, when the tone, uh, especially at the beginning of the war, when Stalin addressed the nation for the first time as brothers and sisters, and he actually, I mean, not just he, but the state needed, you know, the support of uh, the church as an institution that still, you know, hold um, authority among the simple folk, right? And this was the, the interestingly now the moment when Russian nationalism uh, was reincorporated again as part of the official state's uh, ideology, and also. You know, Orthodox Church was reintegrated um, and also became an autonomous institution, uh, at least de jure. There was a patriarch appointed. Uh, and this was not because of, you know, deep respect to, uh, towards, you know, Orthodox Church, but this was because any Soviet institution was supposed to be independent from any kind of global networks. And so there was a uh, Russian Orthodox Church in the Soviet Union tolerated. Um, and uh, in the late Soviet period in particular, um, you know, the church and in general, orthodoxy or any other religion for that matter became um, well, it, it, it was something that the state did not approve, really, and it was absolutely prohibited for members of, of the Communist Party or of the Komsomol or Pioneer Organizations, this Communist Organizations for younger, uh, for young people and then for children to also, you know, uh, be part of the any of, 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 of the official churches. But on the other hand, um, 
dissident intelligentsia uh, tended to, um, to to treat uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or any kind of religiosity in church as a kind of a uh, space of relative freedom. And, uh, you know, the late Soviet history of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy is interesting because, um, you know, it uh, includes history of collaboration with the state, but it also includes um, many histories of um, dissident undercover opposition to Soviet ideology, collaboration with um, rising circles of Russian nationalists in the 70s. So it's, it's really, um, you know, the church has always during the Soviet time remained in the shadow of official Soviet history. Uh, priests were poor. They, you know, this was uh, not uh, a popular kind of um, social niche for young people, of course, but at the same time, this is part of dissident movement and dissident thought um, in uh, the late Soviet period. And then, you know, the change came again with Perestroika and in the 90s, 1990s. Uh, first of all, um, there was this um, uh, demand for alternative ideologies, something that would replace, you know, the Soviet ideology. And religion provided such a source of ideological uh, inspiration. There also was a demand for... Um, national identities and uh, a kind of national identities that would differ from Soviet official nationalism, right? So, for example, in, again, in Tatarstan, this Tatar Autonomous Republic within the Russian Federation, Islam became part of uh, the new Tatar identity. The Soviet Tatar identity was based on um, civic culture on kind of an ornamentalist cultivation of elements of uh, Tatar culture. But the post-Soviet Tatar identity was based on the embrace of Islam. And so the same was uh, the case with the post-Soviet Russian identity. And the problem with Russian identity was even uh, more complicated because um, Russian language, Russian culture was a kind of an imperial medium. It was universal Soviet. There was nothing specifically ethnic, right, in, in this culture. And so Russian orthodoxy was recognized as one important source of national Russianness. And so church became a kind of a very uh, important symbolic uh, source of Russianness for the state and for the people. But also in the 1990s, in order to uh, compensate, you know, the, the church 
um, for the losses during the Soviet period, the, the Russian state gave the Orthodox Church uh, the right to import, think about this, import duty-free cigarettes and alcohol. And this led to, um, uh, you know, church hierarchs uh, accumulating immense, you know, capitals. You know, the, the, the representatives of the uh, church hierarchy uh, are among the most rich people in Russia today. And church as an institution is also an oligarch basically. So this really produces a strange symbiosis between the church as again as a state institution that is very um, real economic interest in preserving the existing political order and regime and church as a symbolic resource of Russian nationalism and a kind of a new ideology of this nationalizing state. And so today, uh, Russian Orthodox Church is a very important element of the, you know, entire regime and system, um, Putin's uh, system uh, in Russia. Although, of course, there are many um, people who um, who, whose whose uh, religion is very sincere, and who go to, uh, you know, who belong to uh, Orthodox Church, not because this is such a powerful institution and such a powerful economic player, but because of their personal belief. Uh, and so you have always respect this, but then also not forget about the role the church plays in the existing. Um, ideological and economic structure. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. It kind of uh, goes against like common narrative a lot of Americans <coughs> that uh, oh, there was no religion in Soviet Russia. Oh, they're uh, they're an atheist society. Like the church had no power. Like if you were to talk to my uncle, very religious guy, very nice guy, he says, oh, there's no religion under the Soviet Union. He, gets, uh, he tells me this kind of uh, narrative that like oh, no religion under the Soviet Union. Uh, the church was repressed. Well, yeah, definitely true uh, earlier. Uh, but like after, uh, I think that's a very interesting perspective for a lot of people that I personally didn't even know before having this conversation that uh, that the church did have some influence in the Soviet Union and it was not, uh, it, it had some symbolic uses. It also had, um, you also said some cultural uses. And I think that was, I think that's a very interesting thing to consider when talking about religion and society and how a lot of, um, I know a lot of historians uh, I talk to argue that religion is an important indicator to where a society is, like uh, um, how prominent religion is, uh, is a very key indicator to if society, if there's issues in society or if there's not issues in society. So I, I honestly found that very interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And also the, you know, Russian Orthodox Church um, right now is a part of this project of nationalizing the Russian state. And this also, I mean, this is very interesting to um, study from, from this particular um, perspective. But again, you know, speaking about the Soviet Union, 
Um, for example, in Central Asia, the role of Islam, especially after the Second World War, was um, very visible. And people there uh, identified as, as Muslims uh, in much more kind of explicitly and in an open way than, than you know, say, Russians in the Russian Federation could identify with Eastern Orthodoxy. So it's also varied a lot um, in uh, Baltic states. This was also different. Uh, in Western Ukraine, the former Galicia um, that um, had been added to the Soviet Union uh, at the, you know, in the context of the Second World War, right? So in, in 1939 and 1940, um, religion remained uh, a very important element of life of the local society and also uh, a kind of a, a channel for opposition. So the Soviet Union was never a unified, completely unified space and religious history of the Soviet Union would also be um, quite internally uh, diverse because you have to deal with different religions, but you also will have to deal with different policies towards different churches and different practices uh, in different parts of the Soviet Union in different republics. Yeah, I honestly thought it was really interesting how Islam, Islam in some different areas or Christianity in some different areas, I think it's very interesting. It provides a more nuanced narrative. It kind of muddies up uh, your consensus, the consensus historians, um, like uh, a lot of people who are not historians, like my uncle or like uh, Joe on the street, it kind of muddies up the narrative and it kind of gets them to think like, oh, is this uh, narrative I'm being told actually true? Or is it uh, just something that's conveniently told to me so I can uh, uh, reaffirm my beliefs? So I think that's just like probably, I would probably say the conversation we had on religion is probably the most interesting conversation uh, we have. It's, we've had so far in this podcast. So I, honestly, I think I should probably do more reading on it because it's a very interesting subject that I could probably spend days, hours, weeks, months, years uh, looking into because uh, obviously, even though I'm personally not religious, uh, I acknowledge its impact on society. And I think it's very interesting. Uh, obviously, I watch a lot of uh, YouTube videos. I look at a lot of scholarly articles per pertaining to religion because they're, it's obviously a very relevant part of our society and ignoring it is uh, very ignorant. This is, this is so true. I, I can share with you my, one of my favorite personal stories about um, this transitional period from post-Soviet from Soviet to post-Soviet and the role of religion in helping people to just realize who they are in this new reality. I started teaching a course on Jewish history in uh, one of the oldest Russian universities located in Kazan, in, in this diverse place, uh, half Muslim, half Eastern Orthodox, populated by people who identified as uh, Tatars or Russians or Ukrainians or were mixed. And uh, there was one woman coming to my lectures. 
and she once stayed after the class and she told me that she liked my classes and I asked her why and then she was not a student she was like an uh, outsider just coming to those lectures and I asked her why and she told me that um, well she had two sons and for her as a someone who grew up in the Soviet Union it was okay to be just a Soviet person but she believed that her sons needed an identity so she learned this word this was in 1999 so they needed an identity and her family was mixed and her husband's family was also mixed. There were Jews and Ukrainians and Tatars and Russians in both families. So she wasn't sure about her son's identity. And so she embarked on you know, the search for an appropriate identity. So first she went to an Orthodox church. You see the logic here. So where to look for an identity? She went to an Orthodox church and she studied, you know, the rituals, the religion, and she decided that this is not something that is appropriate for a modern um, man. Mm -hmm. So this is how she explained this to me. Then she went to a mosque. And then she decided, no, Islam is not good for, you know, my sons. And then she went to a synagogue. And, uh, you know, the, the building was shared with a Jewish community center. And so my guess is that she ended up not in a like synagogue itself, but in a community center. And she liked, you know, those um, facilities for language learning and uh, you know, the English language classes that were offered together with like Hebrew language classes there. And so she decided that her sons uh, were to acquire Jewish identity and that in order to be Jewish, they have to be, you know, they have to be part of you know, Judaism. So really, uh, this was a clear replacement. I mean, she articulated this, that this was something that a new generation needed and they needed an identity, and she meant a national identity. But national, what does it mean to be like nationally Jewish or nationally Tatar to her? This was all defined by religion, right? And religion was a very respectful institution at the time, and she had a choice. I mean, her choice was not Eastern Orthodoxy, right? Because she was in Kazan, where you have this very mixed population where Islam uh, had the same prestige as the Eastern Orthodoxy, but then Judaism was also part of uh, the mix. And so this was her decision. And I really like this story because it's very human on the one hand, but it also tells you so much about this transitional moment and the place the church played in religion played um, in lives of people who were not members of, you know, those religious communities who really uh, decided to become part of, part of those communities. Yeah, definitely. 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 Uh, 
definitely uh, our discussion puts Russia on the list of countries that definitely should visit someday to see to see a lot of this in action uh, someday. Um, on, uh, for the last topic, just to end on a little bit more of a lighthearted note, because we talked about a lot of heavy topics, um, chess with the Queen's Gambit recently uh, recently coming out, and also there's some controversy with it. Uh, yeah. My question uh, talks about chess as an official sport in the USSR. Uh, even before that, if there is some uh, relevant information before the USSR about chess, because obviously uh, a lot of people in the chess community know that Russians are some of the best chess players. Uh, and a lot of people wonder, why is that? I, obviously, I kind of have an idea that it was a state-sponsored sport, and uh, a lot of people would become famous, they would be taken care of. But is there anything more to it? Was there like a history of chess before? Or was it like after with the Soviet Union, chess is seen as an intellectual game that uh, the, so that, uh, the Soviet citizenry should learn how to play? Um, this is an excellent question. And see, because you mentioned that um, you are interested in um, Russian and Soviet history of chess, I did some digging because I had no idea really um, about kind of long history of chess. Um, I grew up in the Soviet Union in the 1970s when everyone played chess. <laughs> and uh, this was indeed an um, official sport and super like the, some, the kind of sport that was also highly prestigious. Um, and, uh, you know, it was obvious that well, as any official sport um, in the Soviet Union, that this was uh, an important ideological vehicle for the Soviet regime to um, showcase uh, the uh, greatness of, of socialism, right, internationally, on the international arena. Uh, and also this was a, a kind of a channel for social advancement. So if you were a good uh, chess player, there were chances that you would be promoted, um, uh, you know, along the, you know, Komsomol or, or party um, hierarchy, admitted to really good university and so on and so forth. But I had no idea about uh, what really made chess such a special uh, sport. Uh, in the Soviet Union, and it turned out that it's actually a very interesting history that, again, tells you so much about uh, this Soviet experiment um, in general. So in, in old Tsarist Russia, chess was um, elite entertainment only, full stop, was not popular among middle classes, or bourgeois classes or lower classes. It was clearly elite um, game. And Bolsheviks at the beginning described chess as a, as a bourgeois entertainment, which was not necessarily factually true because you know, bourgeois like middle classes, they did not play chess. This was like aristocratic game. But in you know, Bolshevik language, this meant that this was something that was not part of the you know, working class culture. And then things changed. And they changed uh, primarily because of one man, uh, Alexander Ilyin 
um, Zhenevsky, who in the early 20th century was um, quite a famous chess player, but he also was uh, a famous Bolshevik and someone who uh, took prominent part in the Bolshevik coup in Petrograd in October of 1917. And in 1920, he was appointed as a commissar, as a ideological instructor um, at, at the um, Office for Universal Military Training. So the idea was that all members of the proletarian class had to receive military training prior to you know, joining the army. And so the, the entire proletarian nation was imagined as a kind of an army of the world revolution. Everyone had to receive military training. And so this guy, Alexander Ilyinzhenevsky, developed a program for such military, universal military training and included chess in this program. And he argued that chess was a very effective uh, instrument of educating analytical strategic thinking and also um, teaching people how to control their emotions uh, and how to be disciplined. So to him, this was uh, an embodiment of, of the revolution itself, something that used to be such an elite thing, uh, would become a popular sport, and not just sport, but actually a kind of a means of um, producing a new type of um, workers, new type of proletarians who would be able to think strategically and control their emotions and, you know, their analytical um, abilities. And uh, this Ilyin Zhenevsky um, organized the very first all-Russian chess competition amidst the civil war, the most bloody uh, event in the post-revolutionary Russian history when people really were preoccupied with basic survival rather than, you know, playing chess. And nonetheless, he organized the first, uh, you know, all-Russian uh, chess championship in Petrograd in 1920. But then chess became politics in a very real sense um, under another guy, uh, Nikolai Krylenko, who became a patron of chess movement in the Soviet Union in 1924. So this Krylenko, he was the supreme commander of the Red Army, but he also was the guy who in many ways contributed to uh, creating the system of mass terror in uh, the Soviet uh, Union because he was uh, entrusted uh, with creating the so-called revolutionary tribunals that replaced old courts. And, uh, you know, those revolutionary tribunals, they um, administered justice based on the so-called class consciousness uh, without, you know, any kind of, you know, legal procedures. 
And then in 1931, Krylenko became the first, uh, became the um, uh, people's commissar, that is the minister of justice in the Soviet Union. So in 1924, he assumed, you know, leadership in the movement of chess players in Soviet Russia. And he explicitly articulated the idea that chess is a very important ideological weapon. And this was the moment when uh, Soviet Union was trying to get diplomatic recognition from international community. And so chess would be a way to present you know, the Soviet Union on international arena and Krylenko sponsored, I mean, he actually uh, found uh, a really huge amount of money in the Soviet budget in 1924 amid the economic crisis to uh, money for the first international chess competition in Moscow in 1924. So this was a way to showcase, you know, the um, success of, of socialism when you have simple workers playing chess rather than representative of the elite. But within the Soviet Union, chess became a means of controlling and organizing, you know, leisure of of working class people. So they would spend time in clubs, in worker clubs, um, playing chess rather than you know drinking or doing something else. And with time, you know, chess indeed became uh, one of the main sports in the Soviet Union. It was cheap. It didn't require lots of investments. Uh, basically, everyone could have, uh, you know, chess set at home. And there were, uh, you know, chess classes in schools, in uh, pioneer clubs and all other clubs for workers and so on. And after the war, uh, chess um, aligned very well with the rising prestige of sciences, which was part of the um, Cold War um, armament race, right? And so um, a good chess player uh, was expected to be a good student in math, uh, someone with, you know, developed logics and so on and so forth. And uh, very often this was students in special schools for gifted children. So this was really a kind of a new subculture of this technical, like future technical intelligentsia, because, you know, it's all started in schools. Uh, so it was a really huge thing in the late Soviet Union, very much part of the not so much proletarian culture anymore, but the culture of technical intelligentsia, uh, the culture of Soviet childhood. It was, uh, again, a channel of social mobility and prestige. And uh, it's all changed again uh, after the end of the Soviet Union when the state support for this particular sport uh, ended. And, you know, it became just a matter of personal choice. So you don't have this phenomenon in Russia anymore. Yeah, that's very interesting how a state would support a sport uh, like chess uh, to show 
obviously I've played in a lot of chess clubs, obviously, and a lot of the people I talk to are engineering students. They computer science program, uh, and they say, they've told me, like, yeah, it's very similar. A lot of the ideas of, like, looking at space, pattern recognition are a lot of things associated with math and uh, being an intellectual in math, uh, and obviously with the Cold War, uh, showing that, oh, we have intellectuals uh, with math and science that were obviously uh, better, obviously, that's not a good, uh, it's obviously not a good narrative to push, obviously, uh, I know most historians kind of think a little bit differently, but uh, yeah, like a lot of math people play chess because it's a very easy game for them to pick up, uh, yeah, and in terms of um, chess being an official sport and it being cut off, it it shows that even today, if we look at the top federations in chess, uh, Russia is still number one. And uh, I think uh, state support, uh, prolonged state support, has something to do with uh, their continued dominance uh, on the world uh, on the world stage. And also with the diplomacy angle, yeah, I, I do think chess is a really good game for diplomacy, obviously, to show that uh, we're not violent at all. We're hosting an event uh, in Moscow for chess where everyone can participate to see who is the best. I think it's a very good strategic decision rather than uh, saying, oh, we're going to go to war, we're going to nuke you, we're going to show we're superior uh, that way, rather than just showing like we want to kind of build a community. While I know that's not their intention, that their like intention, like, hey, we want to build a community. It's uh, obviously politically motivated to show the superiority of the Soviet Union, like how successful socialism was. So I honestly think chess is a, it's a very interesting game and uh, seeing how it, 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 it still impacts Russia today is something uh, that I'm obviously interested in as a chess player, as someone who's rapidly improving, as someone who's uh, studying a lot of these Russian grandmasters, seeing how a lot of them were able to find, uh, were able to uh, be so good without the computers. So it's obviously a very interesting and close to heart topic to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree on so many counts. First of all, I agree that if you know, even if you know this was an ideological weapon, the 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 kind of another side of the same coin was that it was indeed a mass entertainment and. Um, you know, there were schools, very strong schools of chess um, formed in different parts of the Soviet Union. So something that uh, when the state invests in, you know, something that people really like, this is great. Um, I would only caution you um, when you say Russian players, again, this is, you should be very careful because... Oh, yeah. Nowadays, there are, you know, there was a very strong Soviet school of chess in Georgia, for example. And nowadays, those Georgian players, they actually, uh, you know, complain and they don't want to be identified as Russian because Russian is, especially nowadays, um, heavily ethnicized term, right? That they still want to be viewed as, as Georgians and their, you know, school being appreciated as you know, the school located in, centered in Tbilisi, the capital of the former Soviet Georgian Republic and now Georgian nation state. The same is true about um, Latvia and its own uh, school. So we have to be, Soviet would be the most adequate 
um, term to apply to those chess players because internationally they represented not Russia, they represented the Soviet Union, but internally they belonged to their own communities and their local schools. And these schools, they continue to, as you said, um, both in Russia and in Georgia and in Ukraine, you know, those old schools, they continue to develop. There was so much investment, both financial and human, in creating those schools, right? You know, those specialists and these traditions uh, that, that, that still persist. But definitely Russian would be not probably the best way to describe, you know, those famous players and who they are over. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair point to say they're Soviet. Obviously, I remember you said earlier there's 15 different Soviet republics. So, um, yeah, there's some players like um, Mikhail Tal wouldn't be considered Russian. He would be considered Latvian. So, yeah, I definitely do think uh, some people generalize, say, Russia, because I know in the Queen's Gambit it says Russia, obviously, and most of the strong players are from identify as Russian or are from Russia, but there are obviously some strong players from Latvia, Georgia, as you said. So I think, uh, yeah, some people should be a little bit more cautious about that and think about where a lot of these people are actually from and show some respect to some of these former Soviet republics uh, that have very strong schools that are in the top 10. I think Georgia is in the top 10, along with Ukraine. They are in the top 10. They do have some very strong players, and uh, I think showing some respect to them is a uh, obviously something that's very necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on to the third episode of the podcast. I think this is probably the, uh, my favorite discussion I've had because I wasn't familiar with any of the topics. So it was interesting to research. And obviously I learned a lot from this conversation and um, I'll definitely look into, look into uh, some of the things we discussed. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. This was a really interesting conversation for me too. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.